So I don't know if you've ever seen the movie or the television trope. I imagine you have. I think we all have. But it's the one where um, when you start a film and the opening scene of the movie uh, actually shows the main character in some really dire or funny or intense situation. So the movie begins kind of, you know, full throttle and you're going, whoa, whoa, this is crazy. You know, the main character is in some intense, dangerous situation or perhaps some embarrassing situation. And you're going, and the question you're asking as you watch it is, how in the world did we end up here? And you're wondering as you watch, like, how did it get to this point? And, you know, there's a popular meme on the Internet that says that at this very moment in the movie is when you would hear a record scratch, and then a freeze frame, and then a voiceover from the main character that says, yep, that's me. I bet you're wondering how I ended up in this situation, right? You guys know this trope that's in uh, television and in movies, and it's a common trope. The film director shows you the ending of the movie, and then takes you back to the beginning of the movie. So usually the next frame after that is, you know, a black screen that says five years earlier or three days earlier or something like that. And so the director shows you the end of the movie and then takes you back to the beginning. And the rest of the film is you kind of figuring out how this situation unfolded. That's how I want to begin our sermon today. Okay, I want to start with kind of the crazy moment, okay? So we're ending our study on the book of Nehemiah. We've been studying the book of Nehemiah for a couple months now, and I want to start our message today by, in, by starting at the very end of the final chapter. So open scene, you've got Nehemiah. He's a little older. We recognize he's, maybe he's got a beard now. He's a little older than when we've seen him in the prequels, right, in the previous movies. And so this movie opens up. Nehemiah looks a little older, but he looks really angry. He's running through the city of Jerusalem, and he's just picking fights with everybody. So verse 21, chapter 13, Nehemiah says this. He says, look, I warned them and said to them, if you do this again, I will lay hands on you. Now, just to be clear, Nehemiah is not talking about like the spiritual, let me lay hands on you and pray for you. He's talking about fighting somebody. Okay, so Nehemiah, is, he's ready to fight. What's going on? Verse 25, Nehemiah says, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. You're like, okay, all right, intense. The, I mean, they were singing and praising God last time we were, we were talking about Nehemiah. Okay, verse 29, Nehemiah then closes with a prayer to God. This is the last words of Nehemiah, of the book of Nehemiah. He says, remember these fools, O God, <laughs> because they've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And then Nehemiah says, you remember them, God, punish them, but then remember me for my good. <laughs> so the book of Nehemiah ends with Nehemiah in a fury. I mean, he is angry, he's threatening people, he's beating people up, he's even pulling out their hair, and he's chasing them out of the city. And so it's at this point that you would expect to hear record scratch, yep, that's Nehemiah. I bet you're wondering how he ended up in this situation. Anybody wondering how Nehemiah ended up in this crazy situation? Well, if, there, if I were a movie director, the next frame would be black screen, several years earlier, okay? So now let's go back several years. This is what we've been studying the last few weeks. Ne what has happened in the book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah led the people out of Israel to rebuild the broken city walls, and they returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the city after being exiled and oppressed for 100 plus years. So this is a big act of God. God has brought the people of God, his chosen people, 
back into the city of Jerusalem. The city's been destroyed. The people, their culture's been decimated. But through the power of God, through the leadership of Nehemiah, they've rebuilt the city and they've reestablished their culture as the people of God. And then there's, I mean, they just God has been faithful. He's been merciful. And so they make a covenant with one another. And they say, we're going to honor God's commands from here on out. We're going to be set apart people. We're going to reestablish our culture here in this city. And we're going to live out the life that God has called us to live. And so chapter 12 ends with the people dedicating the new city, dedicating the wall, and they're singing and worshiping so loud that everyone in the surrounding areas could hear them from far away. And you're like, that would, that's a happy ending. And it would be a happy ending if it were the ending but it's not the ending. <laughs> Nehemiah left. So what happens in, in chapter, between chapter 12 and chapter 13 is after the city's been reestablished, Nehemiah, if you remember, he was a cupbearer to the king in Persia. And the king had allowed him to come to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And so Nehemiah, though, at this point, he has to go back to fulfill his duties as the cupbearer to the king. So he, goes, he leaves Jerusalem after they've reestablished the city. He goes to, back to Susa in Persia, and he spends, I'm guessing, about a decade serving the king. And then after several years, he asks the king again. He says, hey, can I go back home? I want to go back to Jerusalem. I want to see how my people are doing. And this is where chapter 13 picks up. And what Nehemiah finds when he gets back to Jerusalem, he's expecting to see the people, they've got their cultures established, they're praising God, all these great things happening in Jerusalem. But what he finds is what makes him angry and makes him start pulling people's, people's hair out. What he found was that the people of Israel, the chosen children of God, they had drifted away again from worshiping God. They were no longer honoring the commitments they had made to serve God. They were desecrating the Sabbath day, and they were selectively ignoring commandments of God. You see, just a few years earlier, they had been so excited about what God had done in their lives and so excited and ready to honor God. But here they are years later, they've completely drifted. And listen, I know that many of you have had an experience in your life where you've, maybe you've found yourself in a place where you, you realize you've drifted from God. And you feel distant from God. You, you feel like you don't have the desire to worship or obey Him like you once did. And many of you are like, man, I used to be so excited about my spiritual life. I used to be so committed to my spiritual life. And I've just drifted. And, it's, and you wonder, you know, record scratch, how did I end up in this situation? How have I drifted so far from where I once was? We are all prone to spiritual drift, all of us. Nobody is beyond this. This is why we sing the song often, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Spiritual drift, it happens to all of us at times. It happens even to churches and institutions that over time, they, they were once excited about their vision and their mission, but over time they kind of lose sight of their purpose. And the question for us today, both as a church collectively, but also for you individually, is how does spiritual drift happen? Because if we can assess how it happens, we can then be wise in protecting ourselves from drifting away from God. And listen, there's a million reasons why we can drift spiritually, and I can't address all of them today because we've got a cookout and we're all ready to eat and have a good time. But what I am going to do today is I'm going to address the things that we see in Israel's life in, Nehemiah, in the book of Nehemiah that caused them to drift. I believe there's also things that can cause us to drift, and we're going to learn from their mistakes. 
The first thing we see in their story that caused them to drift is that spiritual drift happens when we neglect spiritual rest or when we neglect the Sabbath. In the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, God commands the people of God to rest from work every seventh day. And he say, look, you trust God on that seventh day to, to provide for you. It's a day set aside to worship and to enjoy God. In fact, our kids and Crossroads kids right now are learning about the Sabbath. So parents, it's something you can talk to your kids about after church. One of the main things that upset Nehemiah when he returned to the city was that the people were not honoring the Sabbath. They were working, they were selling food, the city gates were flung wide open and trade and commerce was happening, you know, like a normal day. He says in verse 15, he says, in those days I came back to Jerusalem and in Judah, people were treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not our fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So Nehemiah gets upset that they're, they're, they're trading and doing business on the Sabbath. And what he does is he gathers up all the vendors and he forces them outside the city. So the city, Jerusalem was a walled city. And so he pushes them outside of the gates, closes the gates, locks the door. He says, you're not going to sell anything on the Sabbath. He says, this is a day of worship, not a day of selling, buying, and trading. Remember, Jesus flipped over the tables for something similar. Well, Nehemiah pushes everybody, all these vendors outside of the city, locks the gate, and says, hey, we're not doing that today. Well, then he finds out, he hears all the vendors still outside at the gate. They're just kind of waiting around. They're like, all right, when the gate's open, we're going to go back in and sell. He goes outside. He says, hey, look, verse 21, I'm warning you, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I'm going to lay hands on you. Nehemiah was a brawler. And, it said, and he says, from that time on, they didn't come to the Sabbath. Nehemiah's making it clear that he let them know. Why is Nehemiah, is he overreacting? Is Nehemiah, why is he so upset? Why does he want to fight people over selling something on the Sabbath day? What's the big deal? Well, first you have to understand what the Sabbath is, okay? The Sabbath is a gift, first and foremost. The Sabbath is a gift from God that God gives his people, but it's also a command. God commands his people to set aside an entire day, listen, to stop working, to stop wanting, to stop buying, to stop worrying, and to simply rest in and enjoy his presence. That sounds great, doesn't it? Oh, a day, a day off. But it's actually really hard to do, isn't it? Because taking a day of actual rest, not a day off, but a Sabbath, a day of actual rest, a day of not striving for more, a day of not trying to build your identity on your career or your productivity, a day to stop worrying, a day to stop buying and accumulating. A day to stop checking work emails. Anybody? A day to simply enjoy God. That's hard to do, isn't it? Because to actually observe the Sabbath, to do all those things, 
means that you have to surrender all sorts of things that you rely on to give your life significance. Money, achievement, busyness, distraction, materialism. You have to surrender all those things if you really want to honor the Sabbath. And God, in his infinite wisdom, recognized that humans, we are prone to run ourselves into the ground. Amen? <laughs> we are. I mean, I, how you doing? Oh, man, I'm just so tired. That's, I mean, that's all you ever hear. So in God's mercy, he gave us both a command and a gift. He said, take a day off and rest and enjoy my blessings just one day a week. And you see, honoring the Sabbath day does two things in our lives. First, it gives us rest and it connects us to God. Don't you love that passage where Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't you guys love that? Why do we refuse it? Why do we refuse his rest so often? He says, come to me, cast your cares on me. But we feel so much more comfortable holding on to our cares and holding on to our burdens. And, G and God in his grace says, take a Sabbath. Take a day to enjoy the rest that Jesus provides. So the first thing the Sabbath does is it gives us rest and connects us to God. But the second thing that it does is it serves as a protection against sin. Here's what I mean. It serves as a protection against our tendency to worship other things rather than God. Listen, we have a tendency to worship money, to worship materialism, to worship productivity, to worship achievement, to worship how many followers we have or how many likes we have or whatever. And the very act of stopping, for example, buying for one day a week is to remind us that we're not just consumers to be advertised to. We're human beings. The very act of stopping working and stopping producing and trying to achieve is an actually an act of trust. It's an act of faith to believe that God will provide for us. The very act of stopping trying to constantly achieve is an act of worship that recognizes that we're already accepted and approved of by God and we're loved by God, not because of our accomplishments, but because we are his children and he loves us. Uh, one pastor says that when work or money or productivity is an idol in our lives, rest will feel like a sin. Isn't that true? Have you ever just stopped doing something and felt good? You just said, I'm just going to take a day. And you feel guilty about it? It feels like you're doing something wrong. But the Bible actually says the reverse should be true. If you're working yourself to death, that is a sin. Not taking rest. You know, Chick-fil-A practices Sabbath. You know this? It's always so frustrating because you, it's like there's something in my body that craves Chick-fil-A only on Sundays. And I'm like, well, I, I want some Chick-fil-A. And then I, it's like, oh, it's Sunday. It's closed. B&H uh, camera also does this. They practice Sabbath. But economists and industry experts estimate that Chick-fil-A loses $1.2 billion per year by being closed on Sundays. You know, the weekends are when people go out to eat most often. So they're, they're making a $1.2 billion sacrifice every year. And Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, and listen, Chick-fil-A gets a lot of hate for a whole lot of reasons. But listen, 
True Kathy, is, he's kind of a boss the way he set up this organization in a way he wants to honor God. He says in his autobiography, he says that Chick-fil-A is willing to sacrifice, and that's what it is, he is sacrificing $1.2 billion and taking that loss, he says, because it is our way of trusting God to provide for us. He says that we are closed on Sundays for two reasons, as a way to honor God and as a way to honor our employees because we do not want to work our employees to the bone. We want to be people that honor our employees and give them rest that their bodies and their souls need. When we neglect the Sabbath, we are neglecting a gift that God has given us. We are in effect saying that we, you, by not resting, what we're saying is, I actually don't believe that God will provide for me, so I've got to provide for myself. You see, the act of honoring the Sabbath in itself is an act of faith. It's, it's, it's an act of belief that God will provide everything we need. And when we fail to practice this, what happens is we begin to easily forget and we begin to drift away from remembering God's faithfulness to us. Listen, some of you think that your constant busyness is a virtue. You say it with pride. How you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. Like it's impressive. Like it's a virtue that you're busy. Newsflash, we all are. It's not a virtue to stay busy all the time. Because it could be, and I say this with all love in the world, it could, and I say this with the mirror on myself, it could be that your constant busyness, your constant shopping, your constant quest for more achievement and accolades, your constant scrolling on your phone, your inability to disconnect from your phone with all the advertisements and all the reminders of what you don't have and what you, how you don't measure up, all of those things could be the very thing that's causing you to drift spiritually. Because all of those things are taking your eyes off of Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, and your rest, and they're putting your mind on things that make you anxious, putting your mind on things that make you worry and feel like you don't measure up. And that causes you to forget God's promises and God's faithfulness, and it causes you to drift. Busyness is not a virtue, church. Hard work is a virtue, but busyness for the sake of busyness is not a virtue. So this is why Nehemiah was upset, because in their refusal to honor the Sabbath, the people are essentially doing two things. First, they're not enjoying God's good gifts. But second, they weren't trusting God to provide for them, and they drifted. I recently read a book by a journalist who spent several months living in Ethiopia and documenting the world's best distance runners. You guys know the Ethiopia best distance runners in the world. And he said, what sets the Ethiopian distance runners apart from their competitors throughout the world, he says, yeah, they trained hard. He said, but everybody trains hard. He said, they trained really hard. Their workouts were crazy. He talks about it in the book. They're pretty insane. He said, but the thing that sets Ethiopians apart from their competitors is how seriously they took rest and recovery. So the author was a British guy, and he was a pretty good runner in his own right. And he spent six, seven months training with the Ethiopians. And he said they would do a hard workout. And then after the workout, they would go back to their house, and he would be firing off emails. He'd be doing interviews with people, writing articles. And he said that his Ethiopian teammates would chastise him for not resting. Now, why would they do that? Because you guys know that you don't get stronger by training. You know that training actually makes you weaker, right? You know, when, after a hard workout, you're actually weaker, right, Corey? You know this. A hard workout, whether it's weightlifting or running, you go work out in the gym, the training actually weakens you. It breaks you down. 
But it's if you properly rest, your body rebuilds itself into being stronger. So it's actually not the training that makes you stronger, it's the rest that makes you stronger. And so the Ethiopians, they would get onto this journalist, they would say, you're not resting. And they actually called him lazy because he was working when he was supposed to be resting. They said, you're not disciplined enough to rest. And he writes, he says, the Ethiopians genuinely believe that when an athlete is not disciplined enough to properly recover and rest, they see it as a moral failure. <laughs> they consider people who don't rest as lazy. Here's the truth. The Bible actually agrees with the Ethiopians. It agrees that refusing to rest is actually a moral failure. The Bible actually calls it a sin. You say, really? It's one of the big ten. The Ten Commandments, honor the Sabbath. It's a failure to live out our identity as the children of God. You see, rest is what sets Ethiopian distance runners apart, but it's also supposed to be what sets Christians apart from the rest of the world. We're supposed to be the people who are content with what God has given us. We're supposed to be the people who can rest in the blessings of God and in the rest and in the acceptance of Jesus. And when we refuse to rest, we're, we're getting caught up in the hustle just like everybody else in our city. And we're not showing the world a better way. And I really do believe that one of the biggest reasons for spiritual drift among Christians today is that we don't rest in Jesus. And if you're here and you're like, all right, Sabbath, this is the first time I've ever really like, does this apply to us today? Yes, it does. And I've got, I preached a very practical sermon on this in our Gospel of Mark series. You can find this on our website, crossroadsbrooklyn.com slash sermons. Go find Gospel of Mark series. There's a sermon called Lord of the Sabbath where I talk about this stuff in detail, but I've got to move on because we've got a cookout to get to. Second thing, spiritual drift happens when we serve money rather than God. We see in the people during this chapter that it's actually greed that drove all of their bad decisions. The reason they didn't honor the Sabbath was because they wanted an extra day's worth of money. That's what they really wanted. They were willing to ignore God's command to rest to get a little bit of extra money, but we actually see another example of their greed in verses 10 through 14. And the example is that they were being stingy with their giving to the temple. They weren't giving to the temple. And as a result, the priests and the singers weren't getting paid. The ministries of the temple were being shortchanged and the, and the priests and the singers were not able to carry out the ministries of the temple. Nehemiah says in verse 10, he says, I found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had to flee, each fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? See, Nehemiah finds out that the ministries of the church aren't being funded because the people aren't giving what they committed that they would give. They're not giving their tithes. They're not giving their, their, uh, in, their, their gifts to the church. So Nehemiah goes out and he says, you said, you committed, you promised that you would give to support the work of the temple. And he goes and he gathers up the wine, the oil, the tithes, and he brings it in and he begins to pay the priests and the Levites. And he restocks the ministry fund for the temple. Now, really quick, I don't want to sound self-serving here. At this point, I actually want to say thank you. Um, a lot of churches see it as a badge of honor to underpay their pastors and their staff. Um, I just want to say thank you as a pastor and I, on behalf of our staff, throughout this entire pandemic, you guys have continued to pay us our salaries, and we just want to say thank you on behalf of our staff. And even when money was tight, you guys have continued to support us. So I'm not going to pull anybody's hair out today, all right? Thank you for your generosity. But what you see in this text is that the people, here's what was happening. They were working more than God commanded, 
in pursuit of more money because they weren't trusting God to provide. And they were giving less than they had promised God that they would give because they loved their money more than his commands. So two things are happening. They're overworking and they're not being generous. And if you wanna know if you are serving money rather than God, those, those are pretty good diagnostics. Are you overworking in pursuit of more and are you being miserly with that which you do have? Listen, I don't wanna be heavy handed on this. This is the, between you and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus himself said regarding money in Matthew 6, 24, he said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus himself says, you cannot serve both God and money. The reason that many people have drifted spiritually is simply put, they serve money more than God and you cannot serve two masters. Third thing we see in this passage is that spiritual drift happens when we don't take holiness seriously. In verse 23 and 27, we see that the, through 27, we see that the men of Israel were marrying foreign women. All right, I'm gonna get to this. Verse 23, it says, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they couldn't even speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now, before anybody panics, let me explain this. God commanded the people of God not to marry foreigners. This is not a form of racism or prejudice based on skin color or ethnicity or national origin. We know this because there are many times in the Old Testament where God makes allowances for Israelites to marry foreigners. Ruth, for example, was a Moabite. The issue is not that they're from another country. The reason God commands the people of God not to marry foreigners is because they don't share the same faith in God as Lord. And so they didn't live by the same commitments and by the same culture. And God, all throughout the Old Testament, God calls the people of Israel to be distinct and set apart. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart, to be different. And he calls them to train their children for generate, and, and the, the generations to know, love, and honor God as Lord. And here's what happened in Israel, and this is why Nehemiah got upset. The men began to marry foreign women. Again, likely because of financial reasons. There were financial and political alliances that could be made through marriage. And so this is, a, this is a, a, another sign of disobedience on their part. But Nehemiah explained, look, the men are marrying these women from Moab, from, uh, they're marrying Ammonite women. And what has happened, Nehemiah explains, that 10 years later, half the children of Israel couldn't even speak the Hebrew language. Their culture that they worked so hard to reestablish was now being lost. They were losing their culture in real time because they were entering into marriages with people who did not have the same values as they did. In 1 Corinthians 6, or in 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul actually says something similar about Christians today. He warns Christians against marrying people who don't believe the same things that they believe. Listen, Paul's not saying that unbelievers are inferior to Christians. Not at all what he's saying. He's not even saying that unbelievers can't be good spouses. He's simply saying that if spiritual values don't align, then spiritual values will be compromised and likely lost over generations. My wife is a social worker. Uh, she is an adoption uh, social worker who does uh, home studies for families. This is a secular adoption agency. Is it a Christian organization? One of the questions that she's required to ask of prospective adoptive parents is their religious background. 
And if their religious backgrounds are different, one of the follow-up questions is, how do you plan on raising this child when you guys have two different views of what truth is, what religion is, what spirituality looks like? Because if you have two people from different faiths raising a child, then compromises will have to be made in what you teach your children. That's the reality of it. So the state and secular adoption agencies recognize that this can create a conflict and confusion within a family. And often significant cultural values, spiritual values, can be lost in the process. Okay, not saying that, it's not saying that these marriages, you don't love one another. It's just simply saying that there are values that, do we pass them down generations or not? And look, I know this, this is a super hard sermon. Can you guys like feel, I'm, I'm a little tense right now. I want to take a moment here to say that some of you, I know some of you are in this situation. And I want to extend grace to you. In 1 Peter 3, the apostle Peter recognizes that this can be difficult. And he offers encouragement to people who are married to spouses that don't believe the same things that they, are, they, they believe. There is always grace. Grace, grace, grace. Love your spouse, serve your spouse, support your spouse. We honor your marriage. But I also do want to say to single people, I know it's hard out there. And sometimes finding someone in this city that shares your faith is tough. And it feels impossible. And I know that there are some really great people out there that don't share your faith. And it's tempting to disregard this command of God as old school, traditional, and primitive. But can I simply encourage you to trust that God has your best intentions in mind. Trust the testimony of the scriptures that committing your life to someone who shares your deepest convictions is always the wisest decision. But listen, the point that I'm making here is not about marriage. The issue here is bigger than marriage. You guys ever heard about the issue of the thing beneath the thing? There's always the thing beneath the thing. And the thing beneath the thing of Israel in this moment It's not marriage. There's something beneath it. The thing is, the people of Israel, they wanted to to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to maintain their position as God's holy, set-apart, chosen people, but they also wanted to experience all that the world had to offer. And at the points where God's commands intersected with the temptations of the world, they chose worldliness. You see, they were supposed to be a light to the nations but they decided they would rather be just like the nations. And in every generation and in every life of every Christian, there are going to be commands in the scripture that are hard to live out. And every generation of Christians has to choose, will I disregard the commands of scripture that are difficult in my time and in my life, or will I choose to obey, trusting that God's commands are for my good, for my pleasure, and for his glory? Sometimes holiness is hard, isn't it? Being set apart is hard. Sometimes it feels like we're missing out on things as Christians if we obey the ways of Jesus. Sometimes it just feels like we're being weird. Anybody ever feel that? You're like, oh man, I just feel weird sometimes. But when we abandon holiness, and we're tempted to abandon holiness, when we, are, when we abandon the commands of God, We're no longer drifting from God at that point. We're actively separating ourselves from him. And so my question that I lovingly ask you today as your pastor is, do you feel distant from God today? Could it be that you've simply shut him out of some area of your life? So there are three things that cause us to drift that we see in this text. Not resting, greed, and worldliness. Now, 
a while back, I was having lunch with a friend, and he had just become a Christian, and he was super excited, like just smile on his face, and God had done these incredible things in his life, and he was so excited about this new spiritual vigor in his life, and we were sitting over lunch, and he said, Pastor, he said, I'm never going back. I'm never going back to the way I was. All those things I used to do, I don't even want, I don't even think about them anymore. I don't want to do them. I will never do those things again. I'll never drift again. I'm all in, he said. I've been a pastor for quite some time. I said, man, I'm so excited for what God's doing in your life. But I want to tell you something. Even if you do drift, even if you do those things again, even if you relapse, even if you fall off the wagon, even if you fail miserably, even if you do all the things that you said you're never going to do again, do not forget that God's love for you will never change. Don't forget that. There is always a way back home to the love of God. And I said to him, I said, bro, the spiritual joy that you're feeling right now, I'm so excited for you. But I'm going to tell you, there are going to be days where you don't feel it. Because there are going to be days where you mess up and you feel like you have blown it. I said, and when on those days when you have drifted from the love of God, you need to know that the spiritual joy that you feel right now is always available in Christ, even when you feel like you don't deserve it. And sure enough, six months later, that guy said, man, I don't know how I ended up in this situation. I did the thing I said I would never do. I said, do you remember what we talked about over coffee, over lunch that day? There's always a way back. There's a passage in 1 John 2, 1 that says, my little children, I am writing these things to you, meaning I'm writing the, you know, this book of scripture to you. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Crossroads Christian Church, I'm preaching this sermon to you today so that you might not sin. You hear me? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Guys, this was not a fun sermon to preach. I don't want anybody leaving feeling any shame today. Because even if you've drifted, here's the message I want you to leave here with. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have been covered by his blood, then right now, or even in the moment of your worst mistake, Jesus is standing before his heavenly Father and saying, I covered that sin. You cannot hold it against him because I've already paid for it. And God the Father and God the Judge, His wrath was fully set, and His judgment toward whatever you feel like you've done to blow it has already been satisfied in Jesus. And Jesus is standing right now on your behalf, reminding God the Father and God the Judge that your sin has already been paid for. Have you drifted? No shame. Put your eyes back on Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the advocate who is advocating for you right now. Listen, the point of this sermon is not to beat you up because you've drifted. The point of this sermon is to tell you that even if you've drifted, Jesus is still there. You guys know Nehemiah is the final book in the Old Testament. It's not, when you open your Bible, it's not the final book in the Old Testament, but chronologically, it's the last book of the Old Testament. 
So think about this. The Old Testament ends with Nehemiah ripping some guy's hair out and saying, God, forget these fools, remember me. That's how Old Testament ends. Then there's 400 years of silence. And you're like, man, what a, it ends on this note of failure. But 400 years later, Jesus enters the story. And remember, Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and he saw all his people in sin. And what does he do? In rage and in a fury, he starts beating people up and ripping their hair out and laying hands on people. Jesus of Nazareth leaves heaven, comes to earth, and he finds that we are overwhelmed by our sin. But Jesus doesn't pull a Nehemiah and start beating us up. Instead, Jesus lays his life down for us. He receives the judgment. He receives the beating so that we can receive the glory and the resurrection. You see, this is the gospel. Jesus came, he lived the perfect life, not only to show us how to live, but to live out the law perfectly for us. And then he dies in our place, and through his resurrection, he trades us his perfect life for our life full of drifts and failures. And he declares that God the Father now sees us just as he sees Jesus. And despite our failures, we are accepted by God. We have a home in heaven and a place in God's family. You may have a record scratch. How did I end up in this situation moment in your life? You might be there right now, for all I know. But don't live in the shame of it. Go back to the cross. Go back to the resurrection where new life and spiritual joy is available to you again and again and again and again. We read Nehemiah, we're like, what a bummer that it ends on this total note of failure. And Nehemiah kind of blows like all this, all this incredible, like 12 chapters of leadership ends with him just beating his people up. But that's to show us how much more beautiful the grace of Jesus is. Jesus doesn't beat us up, but rather he lays himself down for us so that we can receive eternal life.